Praise God. Thanks for sharing. Um, you know, I, I think out of all the things that a, a presider does, I think one of the things I was most nervous about was introducing the guest speaker. And again, this was before I knew that it was Danny. Um, you know, because, you know, Pastor DL, when he introduces somebody, he, he really knows them. He has a genuine knowledge of who they are. And so when he says things about them, he means it. And I, you know, I thought for me, I was going to have to just Google somebody and be like, you know, this is uh, Pastor John Doe. He weighs 160 pounds. He's 5'10", has black hair, brown eyes, and he loves Jesus, you know, something like that. So it, it was uh, just, just a, a lot of relief and comfort to know that, um, you know, we have our brother Danny Chen uh, speaking to us. He, he doesn't need any introduction here at Harvest. Um, but for those who don't know him, he's a... Uh, Danny is, is serving on staff with InterVarsity at, at, at University of Central Florida. So we have some, some people, uh, some of his people here, his entourage. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, InterVarsity is a, a campus ministry that seeks to uh, transform the world by reaching out to students, faculty, and changing the campus for Christ. And so uh, Danny's just a big, big part of that. And so, you know, again, he's someone that's dear to my heart, um, not because we share similar hairstyles, but because um, <laughs> just, just knowing uh, yeah, just, just knowing who he is. And, 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 you know, for those of us who know, you know, we've, we've walked in life with him. Uh, we know that he's a brother who, uh, whether it's in times of loss or in times of blessing, he's someone who really wants to honor God in his life. He's married to Brooke. Uh, she wasn't able to join us today. She, she got in uh, a late, late, flight from, late flight from out of the country. And so, again, um, yeah, let's, let's welcome our brother Danny as he, he shares God's word with us. Is this on? All right. Well, this is exciting, guys. Um, I swear every single time the ball jokes continue. So um, I'll tell you what, though. It takes probably about two minutes for Eugene and I to take a shower. So you got to love that. You need that in this Florida heat. So um, while it's good to be here, um, I know that uh, I know many of you guys and some of you guys don't know me. Um, but uh, yeah, so like Eugene said, I serve on campus. Uh, with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, and uh, this is a privilege for me to come back. Uh, I was part of this community for a, a number of years, so um, coming here always feels like coming home. So really excited to be here with you guys. So uh, if I may just kind of open us up in a word of prayer real quick before we dive in. So if you will bow your heads with me. Uh, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you this morning. Can't preach this message without you, Lord. So I ask that you would just come and take over my mind and my spirit, my mouth, everything that's within me, let it be yours, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have with me this morning an uh, old letter, and uh, this is probably about a 10-year-old letter written in 2004, and uh, I was a sophomore in college that year. And to most people, this letter is probably no more than just uh, some words on a page, but to me, it, it means the world. And I'll tell you why. Um, so those of you guys that do know me, you guys know that um, I lost my father in 2008. And that was the same year that I joined Harvest. And uh, I'm going to move the stool real quick. Uh, that was the same year that I, I joined Harvest. And uh, what happened was uh, it was the first year that I settled down uh, here in Florida. I was living here for the uh, you know first year down here. And uh, after I had kind of gotten settled in my apartment, my parents made a trip to come visit me a couple months later. And during that visit, my dad, uh, unfortunately, died in a drowning accident uh, in the pool of my apartment complex. I was the first guy that, that got there. There was nobody else there. I was the one that found him. I was the first responder. I started ministering CPR and all that stuff. It's really hard for me to talk about, right? Uh, because to this day, it still remains as the most devastating day of my life so far. So fast forward a couple years later. Um, so this was a couple years ago. I was actually... Um, doing some cleaning around the house, and uh, I was going through my drawer, just cleaning out some stuff, 
And I found this letter that I have forgotten about. And this is actually a letter that was written from my dad uh, in 2004, right after uh, I was on Thanksgiving break from college. Uh, after, right after seeing each other, he wrote me this, uh, this letter. I had forgotten about this letter, right? Uh, but immediately as I saw it, you know, I saw the envelope. You know, it has my name on here that my dad gave me. And uh, I opened it up. And I started reading it real carefully. And it will, I'll tell you, it's one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. Because reading this letter, uh, I was reminded of the fact that I had this dad that, that would write letters to me. I was reminded of the fact that he actually sat down, took time, and put his thoughts down on paper. Uh, you know, looking just at this letter, I, I, I'm reminded of his deep love for Chinese calligraphy because it was crafted elegantly into every character of his handwriting here. And most of all, I have forgotten about the nuggets of wisdom that he would impart in my life that are meant to kind of guide me through life. And as I was reading, uh, you know, some of, some of the hardest part was, was kind of reading some of his nostalgic uh, reminiscence of um, just the days before, you know, my youthful days before I, I left for college when we all used to live under the same roof. And also reading some of his wishes and his blessings over my future, my marriage, my career, things that we had never known that he would never actually live to see. So as I was reading this, I started bawling. It was, it was so hard. Uh, just, you know, it feels like my dad was right there saying all these things to me, but it had been years that he's been gone, um, especially, you know, knowing his handwriting and everything. I think this is a lost art of today's generation. That we've, we've lost the art of letter, letter writing, right? We're in the social media generation. Everything's typed out, but there's something so personable to something like this. And I remember when I first read it in 2004, when, when my dad first wrote it, you know, I never really appreciated the full weight of this letter. Uh, I simply thought, as a, uh, thought of it as nothing more than just some, some words on a page. But when it comes from somebody that is so significant in your life that you've lost and is now gone, uh, you want to kind of cling to every single word on there. Because just for a moment, you feel like you feel as if he's, he's still around, he's still present in your life. So why am I sharing that with you? I'm sharing this with you because um, the message I prepared for us this morning is also a letter. Um, so the Apostle Paul was amongst one of the first missionaries for the church right after uh, the time of Jesus. Um, you know, we know that the story of Paul, he, he used to be this guy named Saul that persecuted Christians, had this incredible conversion uh, experience, and then he became a follower of Jesus. In fact, started bringing the word uh, to all these different places. Now, as he was doing the work of the gospel, he faced a lot of persecution. So there's a whole series of letters that Paul wrote that Christian scholars call the prison epistles because they were actual letters written to these different churches while he was imprisoned for doing the work of the gospel. So the books that we read in here, books like you know, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians, and etc., uh, these are all letters written to churches while Paul was, was you know, bound in chains locked up in prison. But what's really awesome about these letters is that they made it into the Bible and they actually form some of the most foundational theology in, in Christianity that we follow today. So, so I chose this passage this morning because like Paul, uh, if you look at the back of the bulletin, I am one of the missionaries that this church sends. And so like Paul, I am a missionary. And this is essentially a letter from a missionary, from one of the first missionaries. And what I want to do is I want to take Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6 this morning to kind of give it to you as a letter, but more so as a blessing from a letter that was written by a missionary, one of the first missionaries from a long time ago. 
Now, you might be thinking that, okay, you've, 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 uh, I've read this passage before at some time, uh, but, uh, you know, so, so I think oftentimes when we open up this book, we can read it almost as if, like, hey, this is, like, nothing more than just words on a page. We just kind of go through the motions with that. But I want to challenge you this morning. I want to encourage you guys to kind of posture yourself. Um, and the way that I found this old letter from my dad, I want you to posture yourself knowing that this old letter that we're about to, to, to read here uh, is an old letter from Paul to us that was meant to illumine and guide our lives. And uh, so I want to kind of invite you guys to receive these words. And uh, normally I know we have the, you know, we will have the, the, um, the slides on the s- screen, but, uh, you know, I, I'm going to encourage you to maybe do something a little bit different this morning. Rather than kind of reading it word by word, I want you to, like, take a posture of just receiving it. So what would it look like, you know, if you, if you want to, you can just listen. You can just listen to these words um, instead of, like, reading along. Just think of it as real words that were written as a letter to bless the church, okay? So Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, it says this. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us, too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is God's word. So... I want to take this letter and kind of break it apart and give it to you and kind of have, have us kind of go through and survey through this passage verse by verse and give you guys some real-life application of what this can look like in our life, right? Okay, so we're going to start with verse 2, right? Verse 2 says, devote yourselves to prayer. Now, inside this church, right, inside the church, inside the Christian community, prayer is not really a foreign thing to us, right? We're pretty familiar with the concept of prayer. Um, but the idea of what prayer should look like can oftentimes be polluted by our society. What do I mean by that? So prayer is supposed to be this intimate exchange of communication between God and us. So then the question that we're left to ponder with is, well, what do we pray about then? If the construction here is devote yourselves to prayer, well, what what do we pray for? What do we pray about? What should we pray about? So it's interesting because I think actually Pastor DL may have said this before. I'm not sure where I heard this. But, um, you know, for those of us that kind of are on the mission field and if you go overseas, and do missionary work um, in other countries and stuff, one of the things that you will realize is there's a pretty significant difference between the way we pray over here versus how some folks in other countries pray. The way we oftentimes pray when we're facing hardships in life and stuff like that is we would say, God, please get me out of this mess. Whereas when you listen to some of the folks that from other countries are going through hardships, their prayers often sound more like, God, give me the strength to get through this mess. And that's the reason, the reason behind, behind that is because here in the West, we live in a very, very, what we call individualistic society. Now, uh, so I'm talking a little bit about worldview here. So there's like these different worldviews, you know, individualistic versus collectivistic. Now, neither one of those are right or wrong, and we can certainly learn a lot from each other. Uh, but sometimes there are things that we do really need to learn from each other. And um, so, so the fact that we live here in the West, you know, being in a very individualistic society our prayers can oftentimes seem very, very self-centered, right? So we oftentimes, our prayers will sound like, hey, you know, God, please help me pass my test. God, please help me get that job. God, please make people like me. 
Um, and there's nothing inherently wrong with these kinds of prayers, but if you really carefully examine those, they kind of have nothing to do with God's greater plan for this world. So the question is this morning, when, when it comes to prayers, what is our motivation behind the prayers that we say? In 1993, uh, the, uh, the government in Switzerland had this um, uh, 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 kind of a dilemma that they needed to solve. So uh, basically, at this time, they were using a lot of nuclear power plants to kind of power the country. Uh, so with that comes with a lot of nuclear toxic waste, right? So the government, the Swiss government had this dilemma where they needed to figure out a way to dispose of that uh, uh, nuclear, nuclear toxic waste properly. So one of the things that they did is they approached a small rural town where they were thinking of kind of using to dump all this toxic waste. And they went to the residents of this town to basically make a proposition. They said, would you be willing to let us to kind of divide up all this toxic waste and bury it underneath everybody's property? And uh, about 50 percent, so about 50, about half, about 50 percent of the residents of this town kind of accepted that deal. And they said, okay. Well, we're okay with that. We'll accept that. We'll put ourselves at risk for the common good of the nation. So they were like, okay, well, that's not bad, 50%, right? But that's not quite enough for them to swing the vote uh, in favor of their incentives. So they basically decided to, to add a little twist to it. So this time they approached the same town but a different group of residents, and they made the same exact proposition. Would you allow us to divide up all this toxic waste and bury it under your property? Except for this time, they offered a reward that goes with that. They said, for this time, um, would, you be allow, uh, would you allow us to kind of divide that and bury it under your property if we give you 5,000 francs, which is about 20, almost $2,200 U.S. dollars, uh, 5,000 5, francs per person per year for us to do that. So they think that this was a, a way for them to kind of increase the incentive so that people will be able to they'll be able to move forward with this proposal, right? But to their surprise, this time only less than 25% of the residents actually accepted this deal. So it makes us wonder, well, why? What happened? Why is it that when you tag on a reward, the, um, the, the, the acceptance rate actually went down? So what they found out is that there are actually two different centers in the human mind that makes decisions, two motivations that drives our decision-making process. They're altruism, uh, altruism center versus pleasure center. What does this mean? So altruistic center basically says or asks the question, am I willing to take a bullet for the team? Am I willing to take a bullet for the team to put myself at risk or to, so, that I can, so that somebody else can be helped or so that uh, I can make a positive impact in this world? That's what the altruistic center makes decisions based upon. But the pleasure center basically makes decisions upon what am I going to get out of this and is it worth it? So in this case, in this case study, the 5,000 francs made people thought, well, 5,000 francs is not enough for me to put me and my family at risk for all this crazy radiation stuff. We can't do that. So when we pray, the question for the church here this morning is, do we pray out of idea of using an altruistic, letting our altruistic motivation drive our prayer? Or is it about pleasure seeking? See, when you look at Jesus, when you read, uh, when you read Matthew, when Jesus is asked about prayer, Jesus instructed that you should pray like this, right? And he says, your kingdom come and your will be done, right? We know this because this is the Lord's prayer. We heard this in you know, plenty of different contexts in our world today. Um, but essentially, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is a prayer that Jesus offered as a plead for God to come and restore this world that is very, very broken to God's original intent. And even if it takes the sacrificial giving of himself, 
in, in the form of Jesus. So can we model our prayers in such a way where we think altruistically when we pray? So that's devote yourselves to prayer, right? So the second part of that verse says being watchful and thankful. What does it mean to be watchful and thankful in prayer? So I don't know if this is like an Asian mom thing, but uh, ever since my mom learned how to use email, you know, this is going to be funny, right? She will start, she'll start like sending me all this junk all the time. I don't know if your moms do that to you. And it's all like always in Chinese too. So like, do you remember like back in like middle school, like if you're my age, like back in, in middle school, like when you used to get all those emails from your friends where it's like, do this and like send this to 10 more people. And then if they send it to 10 more people, like you'd be like blessed in this way and all this, that, right? So like that kind of email where my mom will basically send me all these like scare emails about like how everything basically based on some study causes cancer. So you need to like, like keep away from like, like basically anything. You can't do anything. You can't move. You know what I mean? But every now and then, my mom actually would send me some emails that have pretty good stories in them that actually have some good morality behind it. And uh, as I was preparing this message a couple weeks ago, uh, I saw an email that my mom gave me that sent me, and that actually had a, a few little cool little stories in there. And I thought, in particular, for the part of being watchful and thankful in our prayer, reminded me of this story. And the story talks about this small town that was experiencing a drought. Right, so, uh, so it hadn't rained for a while. They were running out of water, and some of the, you know, there was a lot of damage that was starting to happening to the crop. So um, the pastor of the town basically decided to gather everybody together. And he says, we're going to have a, a prayer meeting together, and we're going to pray and ask God to send rain. Uh, so all these people in the town start coming together to the church. They start filling up the church. And amongst all the crowd, there's this little girl. She was very small, very insignificant. Nobody really paid attention to her. Nobody even really noticed her. And in the middle of the prayer meeting, the pastor was standing on stage, and he's praying, and he's kind of, you know, facilitating this meeting. And he saw this little girl sitting amongst the crowd, and he stopped. And he looked at the crowd, and he pointed at the little girl. He says, I am deeply touched by this little girl. And everybody turned and looked. They're like, oh, what's going on? What's up with this little girl, right? And then the pastor continued. He says, you know, we've gathered today as a church to ask God to send us rain. But out of this entire church, this little girl is the only one who brought an umbrella with her. So being watchful in prayer, it, it kind of looks like that, doesn't it? It's like if we're going to come together, we're going to pray about something, we're going to pray for God to move, we need to pray with an, an alertness and an expectancy, to see, trusting that the goodness of God and that he will come through and move and being thankful for that before it even happens. So is there something that you are desperately praying for right now? Is there something that you are desperately asking God for right now? What would it look like for your prayers to be watchful and thankful? What would it look like for you to bring your umbrella to? Verse number three, and pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ so that which, for which I am in chains. See, prayer is also about intercession. What does that mean? Interceding for each other. We're praying for each other. That's what community is about. But this is especially appropriate for this week because, you know, we have workers in the field right now. As, as uh, some of the prayers and the presider, Eugene, has talked about, all right, we got a whole team down in Ecuador right now. And they need our prayer because the reality is whenever we take the good news of the gospel abroad, there is a very real enemy that's at work that wants to stop, you know, stop that from happening. So this prayer of asking God to keep an open door for our message essentially means that, right? And, and this idea of the mystery of Christ, oftentimes when we read this verse, we don't really understand what that's talking about. See, if you put yourselves in the mind of like a first century Jewish person in this society, one of the things that you're constantly 
wondering and, and wondering and thinking about is this mystery of Christ is the idea of how is God is how is God, so, so like you live with this idea of knowing that there's a God and you live in a broken world and somehow God is going to restore this broken world one day through this thing that's going to come called the Messiah right so like that's pretty much all you know but basically when Jesus came when God sent Jesus this mystery was resolved because this mystery was made known in the life and the death and the resurrection that God put upon himself in the, in the form of Jesus. So this mystery is actually now what we are going out and proclaiming, is explaining to people that how is God actually going to ultimately come and save the day for this world that is super messed up, right? So any time throughout history when anybody has attempted to spread the good news of Jesus has faced trials and tribulations, persecution and martyrdom. Guaranteed, right? We see this everywhere. So the question then is, when we are called to be Christ-like, we're not, we're not just called to, to, to model our, our lives after all the good deeds that we read about in the gospel stories, but we're also called to model ourselves after Jesus' sacrificial giving of himself. See, as Paul writes right here, for which I am in chains. He's, write, he's writing this in prison. Even in the face of persecution, he is continuing to ministering out of that context. So um, this, you know, this, we see this oftentimes on campus. We see this every day on campus where I work, right, where I do ministry. Because we're, we're basically working with a super uh, skeptical generation, right? So this is, we live right here in the postmodern world where everybody says there is no absolute truth. And then there's also this academic pressure, academic opposition that we see in the classrooms all the time. Like those of you guys who have been through college, you probably have noticed some of that. Right, there's this idea that because we live in like the mo- one of the most advanced countries in the world, you know, we somehow believe that if we study really hard and submit ourselves to this education, it's going to give us the ultimate way of life. But ultimately, we do not need God anymore. Right? So like the academic world is, I mean, to put it bluntly, we're constantly basically looking up the sky and giving God the finger. You know what I'm saying? So um, this is the reality of the world that we live in right now. And this is something that we see every day on campus. So this past year... Um, yeah, it's kind of, kind of cool, actually, because Peter's here right now. But Peter and Chris, Chris Lee, you guys know he's in Ecuador right now. Peter and Chris uh, are two of my leaders within university right now uh, that we have actually um, planted an Asian-American small group on campus this past year um, because um, we've noticed a, a great divide. And those of you guys have been in, around the Central Florida area, you probably have seen this before. But there is a huge divide within the Asian American community, between those of us who are churched versus those of us who are unchurched. The unchurched ones um, kind of don't want to have anything to do with the church folks. Um, and, um, you know, they have other things that they're focusing on. And then the church folks kind of never want to have anything to do with those folks either because they, for some reason we feel like if we put ourselves in their environment, we're going to be badly influenced. So it creates this dichotomy of like these these group of, you know, our people that are very, very divided because one is with the church and one is without, without the church. So my encouragement for you this morning, guys, is to think about the idea of this church for this namesake, harvest, right? This comes out of the verse where God says, you know, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, right? So this is the, the verse that we model our, our vision afterwards. But if you notice that, that the very next thing that follows that passage talks about Jesus sending us out like lamb among wolves, Right? And oftentimes we get out there and we see the wolves and we get too scared and we just want to stay with the lambs, right? But the idea is that the reason why Jesus is sending us as lambs among wolves is because Jesus loves those wolves too. And Jesus wants to bring those wolves home too. We oftentimes forget that. So one of the things that we've seen this this, um, this past year is uh, uh, one of the ways that 
Peter, Chris, and I have been trying to um, reach out to the Asian community on campus is we've been visiting some of the already existing structure uh, of Asian American students on campus. So these different Asian student organizations at UCF, right, they have meetings every other week, uh, all these different ones, you know, Chinese American Student Association, Korean Student Association, all these things that you can imagine. And uh, so one of the ways that um, we, we went to kind of reach out to that group is I took Chris and Peter with me to some of these meetings uh, for the sake of networking with some people, meeting some people, and finding ways to make effective invitations to ask them to come and check out our small group. Uh, one of the ways that we were doing that was actually getting a spot in the middle of their meeting and going on stage to make an announcement and make a pitch for what NVRC is doing amongst Asian American students. Peter's smiling right now because that was like a really nervous thing for both him and Chris. It was like really scary for them, right? So, so because I know this was going to be really scary for them, I, 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 uh, the first time we went, I, uh, I kind of modeled how that could look like for them. So I went on stage and probably spoke for about five minutes uh, letting students know. And then uh, a, a week later, we got together to kind of debrief that experience. And it was funny because um, as we were debriefing, Chris was really nervous, and he told me that, you know, when you were up there, I heard, like, this guy, like, snickering behind me, basically saying, Psh, what does this guy know, right? And, uh, and, and, and the, you know, if anything, that makes us even more scared, makes us even, like, not want to do it more, right? But there was a, something that really profound happened at this time when I looked at Peter and Chris and said to them, you know what? Moments like those gives us a glimpse into how Jesus must have felt in the face of rejection, mockery, and persecution. And they just kind of pondered that for a minute, and we're like, wow, that's actually what we're doing here on campus. That's what we're doing. You know, I'm getting goosebumps right now just talking about that. I get goosebumps every time I come here and talk. You know what I'm saying? But was it worth it, though? Like, the question is, was it worth it? I'll tell you it is worth it. You know why? Because sitting behind Eugene right there is Edward. Sorry, I call you out like that. But Edward, some of you guys have met Edward. See, Edward came to know Jesus this year because of Peter and Chris's faithfulness in planting this small group. And, uh, and, and Edward is here amongst us now. Is that worth it? Even just one, you know, that is worth it. That's totally worth it to me. So the question for you, church, is do we live with a sense of readiness to suffer for the gospel? And I want you to hear me very carefully when I say that. I'm not saying that we need to go out and pursue suffering. Right? That's called Buddhism, Right? Um, what I'm saying is, are we ready? Do we live with a sense of readiness to live in solidarity with a God that suffered for the sake of something better? Are we ready to live altruistically is basically what I'm saying, right? Verse number four, pray that I might proclaim it clearly as I should. So living with a sense of readiness basically looks like at a moment's notice, we're ready to present the gospel in a way that is simple, clear, and relevant to whoever it is that, is, that God has sent your path who is ready to receive it, right? And um, so one of the things that we do a lot on campus with university is we do some intensive training on uh, evangelism. Basically what that means is teaching and training students how to effectively communicate the gospel to somebody in a way that makes sense and is effective, right? Um, and this is, and I think this is like this is a really you know scary concept for us because most of us are Asian background, right? We we come from a sense of like we don't really communicate in a very direct way. So like going up to somebody, especially strangers, and engage them in evangelism seems like the scariest thing in the world. I get it, totally. Uh, but when we challenge ourselves to do that, two things can happen. One is not only could somebody's 
somebody else's life to completely change for the rest of their life. The second thing that I think is really valuable is the fact that it gives us the opportunity to really reflect on God's story. And it also gives us, as we over time, the competency to really know God's story deeper and deeper. So uh, I remember a couple years ago, I was out on campus doing some evangelism, and I met a non-Christian student. His name was JP. And uh, we started to have some spiritual conversations, discussion. He came from a very different background, didn't really believe in much. Um, But uh, it was really cool because one day, uh, you know, I kept in touch with him so we can kind of continue on these conversations. And one day I had some lunch plans with him. We got together. We're sitting at the cafeteria inside UCF and we're eating lunch. And he started asking, this was a couple years ago during the first round of riots that was going on in Egypt. And he asked me that he saw on the news uh, that uh, there was a group of Christians that kind of like held hands and like formed a circle around a bunch of Muslims that were praying on the ground to protect them from the crazy, like massive crowds that are like basically would have trampled them. And, and, and he thought that was a really interesting and different kind of image. And he asked me if I could explain to him why Christians would do that. And uh, I took, so, so I saw that as an opportunity. I took a piece of napkin that were right there on the table. And on that napkin, I drew him some diagrams and basically in a very clear and relevant way, explained and presented the gospel story to him see i i never got to see jp actually accept jesus you know i don't know where he is now uh he's graduated since a couple years ago Uh, but i'd like to think that that was a conversation that is of significance that sometime down the road he's going to when he's at the crossroads again um between deciding whether or not jesus is worth it he will think back on that moment and remember that you know what that was one time when somebody actually explained Jesus to me in a way that I understood. And, and that's my prayer. That's my hope, right? See, we never know when God is going to bring somebody into our path. So the question for you, the church, is are we ready and are we equipped to proclaim the gospel story in a clear and in a relevant way should the opportunity arise? Verse number five, be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. See, I think uh, in Christian communities, one of our strengths that's oftentimes seen is, is the way we take our faith seriously and the way that we're able to form a strong community, right? You see this here in this, in this community. Um, but if I were to be completely honest, though, I think one thing many, many Christian communities are lacking is, um, is, is, is there's oftentimes a huge disconnection to the world outside the church. More than often, we're not very wise in the way we act towards outsiders, as this, this, as this passage is, is um, instructing us to do. But that is vitally important, though, because without the incorporation of outsiders, our communities will never grow. Do you realize that? Uh, so there's this quote that's like oftentimes thrown around in the corporate world. world. They say, uh, you only have one chance to make a first impression. You guys ever heard that? So they say, like sometimes they say that to you when you're like being prepped for like a job interview and stuff like that. Uh, but you know you only have one chance to make a first impression. Think about that. I think that totally applies to our context because I cannot tell you how many times I have seen brand new students in the fall, new freshmen that got to campus that we're trying to reach out to, basically just give up on us because at our welcoming events, our returning students were more excited about seeing each other that they haven't seen over the summer than to actually welcome those who have come to seek out community. So this verse, this is be wise in the way you act where outsiders make the most of every opportunity. To sum that up, basically all it's trying to say here is pay attention to those outside of your community. 
And don't miss that opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity, but make the most of every opportunity. See, when I read that line, make the most of every opportunity, I can think of one thing. Um, and uh, this might be kind of fun for you guys because those of you guys that know me and Kenny, he's also in Ecuador. Uh, you guys know that Kenny and I, there's like one thing that Kenny and I absolutely love. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, we love surfing, right? We absolutely love surfing. And I'll tell you why. Surfers, surfers are some of the most ready people in the world. I'll tell you why. Because it's not like playing basketball or volleyball or tennis, whatever, where you can like find the right facility and you can just play it anytime you want to. Surfing is a very, very delicate thing because basically in order for it to happen, nature has to take, it, take its course and like all these different environmental factors have to work in cooperation. And when that happens, you might have just a short little window where you get to book it down to the beach. But for just that one little moment, your world is absolutely perfect. Surfers are some of the most ready people because of that. See, I, I'll tell you why. Because I bet you anything right now that Kenny and I know exactly what's, what the weather is going to do in the next several days here in the central Florida area and out in the open ocean. Because, and I'm not talking about like the, the kind of weather of like the highs and low temperatures and like when it's going to rain, but we're talking about like real like climate stuff, right? We're talking about like we know where the low pressure and high pressure systems are floating around the northern hemisphere right now. We know like how far it is where something might be creating a small little ripple on the surface of the water and that's going to travel for thousands of miles and build into like a sizable like ocean swell, right? We know exactly like which direction the wind's going to blow in, in the, you know, the different times of the day, shaping that wave to become a perfect shape. And we know like what time the moon's going to come up because the moon's going to affect the times of the tide every day. And we know exactly what that tide's going to do to that wave. So when all these things line up perfectly together... You know, you'd be standing right there on the beach and you see these perfect lines, straight lines that's straighter than like a ruler can draw will like come at you like slowly moving towards the shore. And as it gets close to the shore in the middle part, it will like peak up and start breaking and just start peeling left and right. And then you know that you can be on that and just taking like a joyride of your life. It's like it's like the, one of the best things that can ha ever happen. And I don't know, like, you know, I've never like done drugs or anything like that. I don't know what it's like to be high, but I'm imagining like surfing. It's probably pretty close. I don't know, you know. So, um, yeah, but, but there's, a, there's a very sacred element to surfing, too, because when we're out there, like, you guys have all st stood on the beach before and watched the ocean, ocean waves crash, right? It's pretty loud. You hear that soothing sound of the ocean wave. But when you actually paddle out there right behind the furthest break, it's, like, the most, one of the most silent places you can ever be in the world. And when you're sitting out there fixing your eyes upon the horizon, you know that behind you is a whole world of problems that you can for, for a moment escape from. And in front of you is a vastness of the ocean that, has, that can offer like the, the, the endless possibility. And when those waves come between the forces of the moving water pro propelling you forward and the forces of buoyancy pushing you up and the forces of gravity pl plunging you down, you basically will experience this euphoria that is outside of this world that basically make every Bob Marley lyric, like, true in your head. So you're going to ask, like, you're going to ask my students or some of my colleagues, like, sometimes I will call them last minute and be like, yo, um, we got to reschedule our meeting because something came up. They know what's up because we're ready, you know? You're going to ask my wife, like, why sometimes the alarm clock will go off at 5 o'clock in the morning, and I'm, like, completely wired and ready to go. See, that happens because... 
we know that there's something out there that simply cannot be missed. So when Paul wrote, make the most of every opportunity, it's kind of like that, but in a different sense, right? And the question that we need to ask ourselves today is, can we, at a moment's notice, drop everything that we're doing because somebody is ready to be introduced to Jesus and you're actually going to do it? So this brings us to the last verse this morning. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. This is, Paul, uh, this is Paul's wise words of instruction to us on, on how to actually lovingly engage those outsiders that he just wrote about in the verse before that. And two things he talks about, right? One is full of grace, and two, seasoned with salt. So let me talk about the, let me talk about the grace part first. Right? Oftentimes in the church and scripture, like you probably heard this before, oftentimes when we read about Jesus, it's, he's, he's being referred to as somebody who is full of grace and truth. You know what I'm saying? Like we talk about grace and truth all the time. These two different kind of kind of uh, uh, paradigms um, are, are oftentimes talked about. They're oftentimes talked about because they actually have to be in the right balance in order for your ministry to be effective. What do I mean by that? Well, I give you a bad example of what I mean by that. See, we see a lot of preachers, open-air preachers that come on campus and, and just preach all the time, right? And some of these people are like completely just nuts. Like they're, they're, they're preaching like a false message. It's basically undoing everything that we're trying to do on campus. But sometimes you get some preachers that are legit, too. They're preaching something that is theologically sound, and it's good, and it's true. Uh, but the problem is more than often we see these preachers who are too eager to only speak truth into people's lives, and they don't ever give a crap about speaking grace into people's life. Essentially what they want to do is they all, the only thing they want to do is be the Jesus that goes into the temple and starts flipping tables. But they don't want to acknowledge this Jesus that also sits with Mary and weeps with her when her brother died. To win hearts for Jesus, we must learn how to speak in a manner that is full of grace. Because that is exactly what the gospel is about. You know, when I was preparing this message, I was wrestling between if I want to preach out of this message or, 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 or uh, you know, I had another idea of an, another passage I could preach out of. And, and that is actually the shortest verse in the Bible. Who knows what the shortest verse in the Bible is? Jesus wept, right? There's this really short verse that says, Jesus wept. Just those two words, that's the entire verse. Like most of the time we think of it when we think like, ha-ha, it's funny. Well, it's so weird. It's just a, a verse with two, two, two words, right? But, um, but I think that's actually one of the most significant verses in the Bible. And uh, I was going to preach out of that, and it's actually kind of funny because this kind of worked itself into this. So I'm going to talk a little bit real quick about that, right? The fact that these two simple words deems itself as its own verse shows its significance. Because it shows this idea of there's this God uh, uh, that has, has all this humanity inside of this God. And is a totality of a, an incarnational story of how God moves into the neighborhood, how the word becomes flesh, how God is amongst us and experiencing all the suffering and agony of life. It shows a God that is relevant and a God that understands. It shows a God that is personal and it's close. It shows a God that experiences the full extent of human suffering and chooses to live in solidarity with us in that. To put it plainly, this verse, what it communicates is the idea of what other gods do you know in other world religions or philosophy that will actually go down and come and cry with his own people. See, perhaps this is what some of you guys need here this morning. Because I recognize that this perhaps might be a, a very emotional week for you. 
because I know this because I was here three years ago when this very same team went to Ecuador. We went down with a full team and we came back with one less team member. Right. So like one cannot come to this week without being reminded of the fact that uh, the, the life and death of our brother Tico three years ago in Ecuador. Right. The question is, what do we do about it as a church? See, I think uh, we, can, we can move forward and say, let's focus on the positive things. There's almost like this sense of like, you know what? Like his death is not a tragedy. We need to think about like how, like, how many more lives were impacted because of him giving his life. And we, we want to like cling on to that truth, right? But the reality is that Jesus is a God who came and wept with us in the times of crisis. So my question is, do you guys know that? Like, do you guys know that Jesus sees you? And gives you the freedom and space to process all that as appropriately as you need to? Did you know that? See, to be full of grace as this scripture here it's talking about is exactly that. Because as we interact with outsiders, no matter where they come from or who they are, we all come with our baggage. We all have our brokenness. So how can we as the church, for the sake of the love of Christ, wrap ourselves around people in the midst of their brokenness. That's what being full of grace means as we interact with outsiders. And more than just that, it also instructs us to season our conversations with salt. See, salt is an interesting thing, right? The Bible uses salt all the time. It talks about, you know, it talks about about being the light, being the salt, asking us to be the light and be the salt, right? And uh, you kind of wonder, like, what's up with salt? Like, why is it salt, you know? So, um, well, here are a few properties that, that, that salt does that is effective, right? So one thing, you know, this one time, like, I was, I'm not going to name who because this person might listen to this sermon someday on the Internet and get, get shamed. So I don't want that to happen, so I'm not going to name who. But I've been invited to, to somebody's house for dinner before. It's nobody here, so don't worry about it. Um, and they, they were going to make dinner for us. And uh, basically what they did is they took uh, frozen patties of chicken breast and they put it on a baking pan and they stuck it in the oven. And like 30 minutes later, came out of oven, here's dinner. That's it. It was like the blandest thing I've ever tasted. But a little bit of salt can go a long way, can it? Yeah, so salt has this property of being able to make something taste a lot better. And something else that salt does is salt also heals. You know, I had this cut on my thumb like this whole week. And it's been hurting me and bothering me every week. And yesterday morning, I woke up at 5.30 in the morning, I went surfing. And after soaking this finger in the salt water for a couple hours, I don't even feel it anymore, you know? Yeah, it's healed. So salt has the power of healing, right? But something else that salt does is um, what happens when you eat too much salt? Have you ever had a meal where you, it was, like, too salty? You get thirsty, right? Somebody said it. You get thirsty. You spend the rest of the day drinking because you're so thirsty. Salt makes people thirsty. So when Paul commands us to be graciously putting ourselves out there, he's basically asking us to, off, to, to be in such a position where we're always ready to offer something that is tasty and to be always ready to be agents of healing to somebody who is broken and to always point that towards Jesus because that is what actually makes them thirst more and more and more. It's for Jesus. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing this fall. You know, in a month when, when, when school starts back up at UCF, we have this whole, like, evangelistic campaign ready where we're going to be engaging the campus around the question of thirst because we want people to think about it. Because, you know, as I watch people walk around on campus, everybody is thirsty for something. You know, everything that a college student does, you know, as they leave the nest of their parents and arrive at this big, bad college, they're all trying to find something, right? One, they're trying to figure out their identity. 
Two, they're trying to figure out their security. Third, they're trying to figure out their significance in this world, right? That is something that deep down inside every human being is thirsty for. So this last part of this verse that says, so that you may know how to answer one, know how to answer everyone. It's talking about this gospel story. It's talking about this mystery of Christ that is going to actually finally offer the answers to all these things that people are thirsty for. And the saving grace of the gospel is the fact that these answers are found residing in us, those of us that follow Jesus. And you guys all have the best thing to offer to this world. So in closing, I want to um, give you this. Um, in closing, so in university, we oftentimes talk about three C's. We talk about three C's. Like these are the three C's that uh, will ensure that we have a healthy uh, ministry. And these three C's stand for communion, community, and commission. So like this might sound like big words to you. I'll break it down for you. Because if you think of the word, like the English prefix com basically means together, right? So communion basically means together we're in union with God. Community means together we're in unity with each other. And commission means together we're out in the mission together. That's as simple as it is, right? And we see all these aspects of all three of these C's in this passage, don't we? Uh, We see that Paul is commanding us to devote ourselves to prayer, making sure we have communion with God, right? And and he's also asking all of us to pray for each other, right? Praying for each other, being in intercession for each other. That's community, right? And then the rest of this passage talks about this idea of how to proclaim the word, how to interact with outsiders, how to make the most of every opportunity, right? How to speak grace, how to be salt in other people's lives. So like all of that is this idea of how can we come together and do commission together, So my closing charge for you is I want to kind of address each of these three real quick uh, about how we can engage and grow in that more as a church. Uh, One is our efforts in communion, right? So um, this idea is fostering a strong connection with God. So um, question for you guys. How many of you guys have ever, how many of you guys have or have ever had a membership to the YMCA? Yeah, so I had a membership to the YMCA too. Do you guys know what YMCA stands for? Young men's, young men's what? What's the CA? Christian Association. Young Men's Christian Association. See, the YMCA was an organization that was found in the mid-1800s. And on their doctrine, it actually says this organization was found to aim to put Christian principles into practice by developing healthy body, mind, and, and, and spirit. Um, I'll tell you what, though. Like, of all the times I've been to the YMCA, I've never felt like there were any Christian principles being developed inside of me. And I'm not here to, like, diss the YMCA or anything like that. Like, it's a good organization in terms of, like, providing a space to work out and as a rec center and stuff like that. But this is a classic example of how something that is set out to, to be a Christian thing by losing the communion with God can just become a secular thing. So 150 years later, we got this organization that still bears the name Christian, but nothing about it is very Christian anymore. Right? So... My encouragement for you in terms of communion is, yes, we can come together, we can worship, we can read the scripture together, we may even fast and pray together. But the question we need to always be asking in our hearts is, are we earnestly seeking closeness with this God? And I'm not just talking about a God that is like triumphant and glorious as he is, uh, but I'm also talking about the God that comes and sits with us in our mess and spends time weeping with us. See, for some of us this morning, this might be the Jesus that you need. And you've been running around trying to find that, and you, you, you have landed nowhere. And you, you've, you've maybe even avoided facing this Jesus. 
who really loves you and who sees you. Jesus is inviting you today to come and to rest in him. So offer up your prayers to be watchful and to be thankful and be expectant to see him move. Our efforts and community, second closing point. This is about a strong connection with each other, right? So uh, I read the story one time about a guy who was sitting on a bonfire and uh, he was basically thinking, he was sitting at a bonfire with his pastor and some folks from his church and he was thinking to himself. So he finally voiced his questions to, to the pastor and he said, Pastor, I was thinking, you know, if I can read the Bible on my own, if I can worship on my own at home, like why is it important for me to come to church? And the pastor didn't say much at the time. All he did was he took, uh, he took a burning log out of the bonfire and set it aside and they both sat there and watched this log as it burned a little bit longer and eventually burned out into ashes. And the man immediately understood that without community, we can burn out and die out on our own. So my encouragement for you is that, yes, for most of us in here coming from an Asian community, we are a very communal and very collectivistic culture. And that's a good thing. Uh, But oftentimes, because of the fact that we're also a very, very highly shame-based culture, um, we only want to give each other our best side. We we only want to, like, let each other see our good side. This is what saving face is all about. Right. So then what happens over time is nobody actually knows about the real junk that we're dealing with inside and the things that are really hurting inside. So the question is, do we have do we allow the freedom and space for those hard things to be brought to this church community for us to be able to deal with it, each other, deal with it with each other and to find hope with each other in Jesus. As you guys continue to pray for me out in the field and those of us who are out there serving on campus, my prayer for you is that this will be a place where you will have the freedom to bring your brokenness in and that we will surround each other constantly and be agents of, see- of healing that is sent to each other as well. Lastly, our efforts and commission. So the best analogy that I use with this one is um, how many of you guys like to watch sports? So Eugene was talking about, you know, watching football or basketball or, you know, you know some of you guys just are in the middle of watching the World Series. Or, I mean, the, the World Cup, right? Um, and uh, one of the things that you notice with a, a sports team is that, you know, before a game is starting or like during halftime or during any kind of timeout, what oftentimes happens is the team will huddle together, right? They huddle together and they talk about the game, the game plan, and then they all put their hands in the middle and they do the team cheer or their, their chant. And then, and then what happens immediately after that? You got to go in and play the game, right? You got to go in and play the game. See, I think most Christian communities do a very good job with communion and community, but we oftentimes don't really know what to do about commission on an everyday life basis. So we become this this holy huddle, right? So every Sunday we got Christians coming together and we're just cuddling, I mean huddling together. Some of us are cuddling together, right? And then we talk about like our game plan, right? We talk about our game plan and and then we do our, our hoot and holler, we worship and we do our chant and then we break and we go out there and we don't ever do a darn thing right? That is a church who has a team who is doing communion and community, but they're not playing the game, right? So as we, and I'm not saying this is us, right? This is just an encouragement, but I'm just thinking, I'm just saying as we reflect on this week, right? We got a team that just got back from the, TR, the DR. We got a team who is in Ecuador right now. So the question that we need to think about is aside from those few weeks in the summertime, are we as a church being missional and being in the game the rest of the year? In our own contexts, in the workplaces, at school, in whatever place you might find yourself being. See, as a missionary that is sent to you, um, you know, I got a couple of opportunities that I would like to, 
invite some of you guys to, right? So in about a month, we're going to start our new semester at UCF. And the day before that's going to happen, uh, or two days before on the Saturday, the 16th of August, we're going to have a prayer walk together where this, I want to invite this church because you guys have been supporting my ministry. And uh, this is an opportunity for you to get to come out and actually see some of what we do. So we're going to have a prayer walk at the UCF campus on the weekend before all the new students are going to come and arrive and pray and intercede for that environment. The second invitation I want to give you is, uh, this is something I'm really excited about. We got a conference coming up. And this is for the very first time we're doing a joint conference in partnership between InterVarsity and KPCO. And this is going to be a conference that's going to talk very specifically about um, 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 Asian-American Christian communities, how we can be missional together, how we can use our strengths together, how we can be healed together in our brokenness, and how we can ultimately be sent out and get more into our community. And this is going to be a, a conference that you'll start hearing a lot more about. It's going to happen in November. And um, yeah, it, and, and it's going to be uh, for, for anybody that's kind of college age or young adults amongst us. But those of you who are younger, don't worry. We're going we're gonna to keep doing this. So if you stick around, it's going to come to you. Okay. So um, yeah, just in closing, I want to pray for you guys because um, yeah, I, I just, I, I love this church. This is a community that I, I look at your faces and I see family to me. And, uh, and you guys mean a whole lot to me, and, uh, and it's been a blessing for me to be able to come and share with you this morning. So I just want to pray with you guys real quick. So if you will bow your heads with me, um, my prayer for you this morning is that we would, we would hang on to each and every word from this letter, like the way um, I hang on to each and every word from that letter from my dad. Um, my prayer is that, Lord, I pray that this community... Uh, will begin to pray altruistically and expectantly for each other and for those of us out in the field. And I also pray that we would not be afraid to continue to take risks for the kingdom in everyday life, in every, whatever context we find our, ourselves in, to continue to take risks, even if it means that persecution will follow. And I also pray that, Lord, you will help us to seize every opportunity to win souls for the kingdom as God moves to restore as you, God, move to re restore this broken world. And lastly, Lord, I pray that you will give us a spirit that is gentle and gracious as we continue to draw in more and more to you and allow us, God, allow us, use us to redeem this generation. So, yeah, we, uh, we, we thank you and we, we praise you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.